Hello, everybody, and welcome today to the seventh episode of the Chief Librarian Podcast. I am Chris Morgan, your Chief Librarian, and I'm happy to welcome you to this episode. For today's episode, I have a couple of segments ready for you guys. The first one, of course, is a recap of the intro game to the Diadem War campaign. I had Rich, Rich, and Zach over to open up our fleet engagement as we had our preliminary fleet forces attempt to chase each other off as we pursued various chaos pirates fleeing the planet's surface with their ill-gotten spoils of war as each player and each fleet sought to give an early advantage to its forces with the spoils of the leftover contraband. That was a really good time, and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to everybody talk about their strategy and who the winner was of that initial game. I'll, of course, be sharing some pictures I got of the game, as well as some pictures of another game I played that same day with my dad, which was a lot of fun. So that's the first segment. For the second segment, it's a little bit of a new thing for this show. It's a segment that I've named Captain's Log, and it's basically my thoughts about some things that are going on in the Warhammer 40k community. I mostly end up talking about the accessibility slash allowability of Forge World, as well as take a stab at tearing down some of the arbitrary distinctions that we tend to create around the idea of competitive gamer and narrative gamer. That's a fairly robust segment because as it turns out, having opinions is good for podcast length. So I hope you enjoy that. So far as hobby progress is concerned, I spend most of my hobby progress working on some of my ships for the fleet. I will put up some pictures of those, of course, as we discuss the Diadem War recap. You'll see some pictures of my ships and everybody else's ships as we get started here. On top of that, so far as painting goes, I've been working on some Dungeons and Dragons figures. I am currently the Dungeon Master for a group of six players. And while we are all playing remotely, I am trying to prepare for a big end of arc event. And while we are doing it remotely because there are some people who are out of state from where I am, I am setting up a table and using my gimbal and my phone to try and have a video style battle map that everybody should be able to see and enjoy and see their miniatures. So I've got miniatures for the entire party. I, I had a character just switch or a player just switch characters and then I have a new player who's added a new character into the group as well so I'll be working on getting those set up and then in the meantime I have some other characters that will be bad guy NPCs and things that I'm going to continue to work on those I don't really have any good pictures of yet but I do have one NPC who I made that I am very happy with and if you're watching this on the Frontline Gaming Network YouTube channel you can see him right now while this is primarily a Warhammer-related channel, there's, of course, a lot more going on than just Warhammer Universe stuff. So if there is Dungeons & Dragons content that you guys are interested in, the best way to let me know would be to send me a message at facebook.com slash brothercaptainmorgan, where you can interact with me on my Facebook page there. But there may be a time in the future where I do a segment on dungeon mastering or dungeons and dragons and the relationship between the sort of classic tabletop rpg genre and wargaming in general 
So far as games played, you guys will hear about the Diadem War campaign stuff, but I did want to take a minute to just kind of talk about the game my dad and I did and this idea of sort of spontaneous wargaming. Now, when I went up there, I was only going to be up for a few hours, and it was quite a drive to get up there. I had some errands, some personal business to take care of, and then I had to wait for a period of time up around the area where my dad and my mom live. So I asked my dad, I was like, well, hey, since I borrowed your space terrain for full thrust, what if I brought it back and we rolled some dice while I waited for this other errand to finish? So my dad got out a space mat and put it on the dinner table. And the dinner table is a little bit smaller. Uh, I mean, it's about as long, but a bit less wide than the standard sort of four by six tabletop that we're used to. So what we did is we used sort of the narrowness of this lane to add to the dimensions of the scenario that my dad came up with, where we each had a couple of mining ships and there were two groups of asteroids. And the, the goal was to navigate your mining ship over to where the asteroids were and at a slow enough velocity, see if you could mine each clump of asteroids and then get off the table. And if you could do that, then you would score victory points. In the meantime, you had to try to defend your ships from the enemy attack ships and attack the enemy's mining ships. So it turned into this fun little scenario. And it started off, I mean, I, I generally tend to play very aggressive. No surprises there. But my dad played some interesting tricks and used the asteroids to his advantage and focused less on scoring in the, in the short term so that he could try and outlast my fleet, maybe pick off my ships before he started trying to mine. Unfortunately, his navigation was a little bit off, and he ended up taking a bunch of damage from crashing one of his mining ships into the asteroid field in his haste to get out of my line of fire. Then I was able to pick off the survivor, while in the meantime, I focused on scoring right away. My ships were left out in the open at one point, and one of the ships took some heavy damage and was destroyed right away. I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to score enough or win the game. But thankfully, because of some of the damage I'd done to my dad's ships, as we passed each other in the middle of the map, I had eliminated the maneuverability of his strongest ship by damaging the engine. So he wasn't able to turn very well. In fact, that ship narrowly avoided flying off the edge of the map, which ended up working out pretty well for me because it gave my ships some time to regroup. But unfortunately, my torpedo boats had some pretty awful shooting, and I ended up losing all of my attack ships while I did end up preventing my dad from scoring anything and mining two asteroid fields. So the conditions for the scenario were if you win, if you get more mining fields mined. But considering I lost my entire fleet, I was like, you know, losing an entire fleet of ships probably ended up making this whole scenario a wash. <laughs> so it ended up being just kind of a fun short game, but it was an example of how you can just kind of take what you have, throw a scenario together and use the narrowness of the map as kind of a, an additional game enhancing feature to make the most out of an opportunity to roll dice. So I had a lot of fun doing that. Full Thrust is a very fun rule set. Perhaps I'll do a deep dive into the rules and talk about it in a little bit more detail in another segment. But for now, it's just something that it was very fun to take this game that I've been playing even since before I was playing Warhammer 40k and use my Warhammer 40k ships using that rule set, getting kind of the best of the 
nostalgic playing the game I know and also playing with the things I love. And that was that was really fun. Now, just a quick reminder, there's only going to be probably one more episode this year of the Chief Librarian podcast. We are getting into the holiday season over here in the States, and that starts with Thanksgiving. But on top of that, I'm also moving house and have a very, very busy December. So if I am able to, I would love to get some kind of bonus holiday episode out for December. But I wouldn't hold your breath for it. The room I'm going to be using as my hobby room is still unfinished. And so that's going to take some time to put together. And I imagine that's what a lot of December is going to look like. It's just unpacking stuff, trying to figure out what furniture we don't have or what we need. And then trying to get the room that I'm going to be using as my hobby room finished. But before that, we've got to finish the other part of the basement. And anybody who owns a home or has had to deal with any kind of living space understands that moving is hard and it's extra hard when there's work to do when you get in. And as much as I kind of look at New Year's as an arbitrary way of starting things up again or ending things that you shouldn't have started in the first place, so far as resolutions go, I am looking forward to January where things will slow down quite a bit and I'll be much more able to focus on getting some of the more normal life stuff once the busy season is over. Okay, well, that's pretty much it for announcements for this episode. And it's quite a long one, so we're going to go ahead and jump right into the Diadem War recap, shortly followed by my captain's log. So strap on your psychic hoods, get out your librarius cards, and let's take our first steps into this week's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Librarius. I am your chief librarian, Chris Morgan, and I am really happy to have all of the warlords here for the Diadem War campaign. Let's start with Rich Mahoney. Say hey. Hey, everyone. Zach, what's up? How are we doing? And the war boss himself, Rich Kilton. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, we had just a couple days ago our introductory game, our initial kickoff to the Diadem War campaign where we got all of our fleets together and fought a battle against each other and in pursuit of treasure being stolen from the planet by the Chaos Insurgents there. Guys, tell me about your game experience. Uh, I had a lot of fun, actually. It was it was fun playing a new rule set that I'd never played before, uh, that being the uh, full thrust rule set. And then it, it made for a very uh, fun and interesting battle between the four of us. So with what we did, we we had a planet in the middle of the map. And you guys will be seeing some pictures on the YouTube as we're talking about this. But we had a planet in the center of the map. We had a, a couple of asteroid fields scattered across and then a moon. And what we did is we had a random direction determined by the, the pointy side of a D10 after you roll it. And we had about five ships that would launch from the surface of the planet in the random direction going the number of inches indicated on the d10 and victory points were based off the amount of damage you could do to these ships representing your ability to either take them out of commission or pick up shrapnel or whatever it was that your objective was but in the meantime we could still attack each other we just wouldn't get points for fighting each other 
and very quickly, three of us descended into infighting and chaos, and a very sneaky, pointy-eared Zack decided to run away with all of the goods. You know, it's like I play Dark Elder or something. <laughs> uh, just, just the orcs did make them pay by destroying one of their capital ships, as orcs are wont to do. And and speaking of orc capital ships, we had a bit of a, a modeling conundrum that was thankfully solved by the creative use of a cruza that was used as the capital ship for the Necrons because of a, a missing ship. But uh, it, it turned into this fun little roleplay thing where we're like, no, actually, this capital ship is full of orcs. They've just got mind chuckle scarabs in them. And that's why they're fighting with the Necrons today. And I thought that that was really funny. <laughs> hey, as long as they're just scrapped, the orcs are loving it. True. We had a, we had a visit from uh, Trezen. Yeah, he certainly has a fondness for those things, doesn't he? And that was the ship that the orcs went after first, because, of <laughs> course, you know, they gotta gotta punish those those betraying rascals. Well, you know, orcs give orcs the best fights, right? Probably a bunch of sneaky blood axes anyway. <laughs> that sounds about right. That was a, a pretty fun little, what would you call it, a, a correction to the battle order. It was something that we were able to take in the moment and then turn it into kind of a fun little narrative spoof. I don't know. It was. It was fun. And as a, I, I echoed the praise of the full thrust rules as a longtime player of Battlefleet Gothic. I really enjoyed the rules. Very simple rule set, which I enjoyed. Yeah. Basically, if you haven't played full thrust yet, all you really need to do is get through the first turn and you've kind of got everything figured out. Now, there were there were a couple things that we did just kind of in the moment of the game. For example, going through some of the asteroid or debris fields, we decided to treat it like you took D6 damage if a ship went through, as opposed to just trying to you know, figure out exactly what would happen. I thought that that ended up being kind of a fun sort of in the moment thing that added some some depth to the game itself. Yeah, and that was that was good. I mean, and I got a couple of the rules wrong. I ended up playing a game with my dad later, and he showed me a, a couple of things I did wrong. Nothing that was too game breaking uh, i had like the range the maximum range of the torpedoes was a little bit different and then i guess for turns if you haven't played full thrust the way that you move your ships is on the bases you have tick marks like a clock you know 12 tick marks and then if you wanted to make a, a turn it's like one point on the clock for a one point turn, two points on the clock for a two point turn but you had to do it mid move so it's not like you're turning on the dime before you move unless your speed turns to zero apparently in the rules that's capped at two point turns you can't do three point turns however oh i kind of like having because the, the way that we did it is that you your thrust value had to be a certain number anyway to do a three point turn and i feel like if we kept kept that for some of the smaller ships like the added maneuverability makes up for the fact that they don't have as much shields or hit points it just kind of gives you more you can do with them. How do you guys feel about that? Sounds um, good to me. Yeah, it sounds good to me. I'd almost say uh, maybe have it be something we can purchase like through either like requisition points or something that we pay for in the campaign to make like a really maneuverable torpedo boat or something. Oh, like kind of a, a role play with the ships, like have your ship names and have an upgrade list. Like the Wazazaz might have some extra oomph to the engines. Okay, okay. That's something we could explore. I know that there's custom ship rules in full thrust where you can design a ship and pay points for different things. But 
it might be fun to have almost kind of like a a list of six relic ship upgrades or something that we could we could purchase or or have as a as a reward or something as the camp campaign escalates. I'd be willing to hear your guys' ideas on that. I mean, as far as my ideas in regards to it, I I think it's a great idea. Give us it, it's giving us an additional. I mean, yeah, it's a little more bookkeeping, but I think it's it'd be a lot of fun to be able to go. Okay, look, here's you know this this ship of ours that has survived you know, these three different space engagements and sure enough, you know, it's, it's, you know, faster or it's able to turn better. It's, you know, maybe we're able to upgrade it with a shield battery, something like that. I mean, imagine a hero torpedo boat that has, you know, a shield and an a gun instead of C guns. That would be pretty heroic. Yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty heroic. Well, we'll have to brainstorm some ideas for, for how to execute that and incorporate that into some of the fleet battles. Now, Zach, why don't you tell me a little bit about your game plan? Because uh, being the champion, he won an extra requisition point for his 40k army as part of this opening you know, opening position. I actually started on the table corner closest to him, but he, he pretty much ignored me completely. So what was, what was your overall strategy? Or were you just being you know, a cowardly pointy ears the whole time? Calculating is how I would describe it, not cowardly. Um, <laughs> as uh, as uh, Rich, who's my normal 40K sparring partner, knows, um, I'm a very react and change my game plan according to what my opponent does. I'm very cagey, kind of just skirts the lines, doesn't really engage you directly. And so my thought going into this is, I don't know what everyone else is going to do, so I'm not going to be aggressive, but... As soon as I saw that you were, you started going towards Rich and Boss started splitting his fleet between me and Rich. I basically just went for the ships and went against the person that was coming at me only since, you know, so I only, I was only having to fight half of uh, a player's full force. Whereas poor, uh, poor Rich Mahoney got pincered between you and Boss. So that left all the, the ships that were f- fleeing towards me for easy pickings. Yeah, that was that was quite a scrap we ended up getting into. We didn't use any of the ship collision rules. It's really hard in this game to collide because basically your stems have to end up in the same spot as mm. the, as the enemy. So that it's a little challenging, but we like you guys have probably seen on the pictures already that there were quite a few ships just crammed into a very small space right there. Nice and close. I tell you I, I, one of the things I love about this game is the shield shields are actually really effective. And when you lose them, it makes such a big deal. But then you have these sort of hard counter things like torpedoes that bypass the shield. So like, even if say you were to build a custom ship and go all in on the shields, all it would take is a couple of good hits from the torpedo boats and you're in rough straits. Yeah. The difference between a getting through on a four versus on a five is huge yeah we we added an extra layer of shields to the the quote-unquote capital ships for this so one layer of shields means that a a laser battery would hit you on a five or a six instead of a four or five or a six and then two layers of shields turns a six into a success which for you know boss here is never a problem but for the rest of us that ends up being a little bit more of a challenge he rolled so many sixes uh, hey Hey, the first shot of the the first volley was a six torpedo volley followed by a six for the damage. That's the power of belief. (laughs) 
But yeah, I'm, I mean, the internet has basically been trying to decode exactly how this happens for pretty much all of Rich's online career. And for all of us who have to deal with mechanics that reward sixes, it's it's a real problem. <laughs> I don't see it as a problem. <laughs> you wouldn't. It, it, it would be one thing, though, if you actually rolled that on like leadership tests, but you don't. Ugh. doesn't matter what dice he uses. It doesn't. So when when I get teased by by friends of mine like Micah or like Ben about magic dice, I just kind of roll my eyes because I know Rich Kilton. You just got to believe, boys. <laughs> Working that, on that it. All it takes. That's all it takes. <laughs> well, that's cool. If you believe, if you believe you're lucky, you're lucky. So, what was speaking of Rich, uh, boss? What was your strategy here? Were you were you just all in on the role play, trying to? get in in as good a scrap as you could or did you have kind of another objective here so yeah for me um i i saw two fleets and divided my force fairly evenly and went after each i do have to say that i believe i was the only fleet that did not lose a ship and um i did kill at least two ships from the enemy fleets plus i took down I contributed. I I didn't score as many points as 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 uh, my Dark Eldar opponent, but I at least killed enemy ships. So I consider, even though maybe you won on points, I won the scenario. <laughs> well, I didn't win either of those things. So there. Well, one of the one of the cool things that was suggested while we we're playing the game was this idea that if one of the ships got destroyed before we would send out another one, because basically there were always going to be five ships out at, at a time, and the direction was random, but when one would get destroyed, we'd roll a dice, and at the start of the next turn, a new ship would come out to take its place in a random direction to see you know, where it would end up and who could get prizes or whatnot. And one of the things that was suggested was that when a ship got destroyed, we put down these little tokens, and if you could navigate your ship to where that debris was, even if you're just kind of flying over it, you could pick it up almost kind of like a little power up or whatever, and it would award D3 bonus points. And that's the sort of like active casual for the fun role play stuff that gets me really excited in the middle of the game. I think was whose idea was that? Because we all ended up talking about it. I think I suggested it at first. Yeah, I thought you, I thought boss suggested it. OK, and then we all just kind of hammered out how we thought it would. Yeah, precisely. Very cool. Well, uh, Mahoney, tell me a little bit about your strategy here. So my strategy going into uh, kind of going into this this game, I, I wasn't entirely sure what to expect uh, as far as as far as the play, because like I said, this was my first time playing this. This was my first time playing this very specific rule set. Thank you. Rule set. Yes. <laughs> and so I was trying to go for the the what I felt was the closest resource ship, which happened to put me in between, uh, which happened to be in between me and uh, Cap. And so that just inevitably led to us uh, to us fighting. And then because we adjusted the asteroids, because we weren't a big fan of where they were at the beginning of the game. That then split my forces in half, and so the other half just naturally went towards uh, bosses' ships because they had to navigate around that asteroid. 
And it just led for this really interesting dynamic of where I got stuck between the two forces. But at the same time, uh, it really allowed my other ships to come in afterwards, after the first resource ships were destroyed. It allowed my ships to come in afterwards and, and start to claim some of those resources. Granted, it didn't, it didn't pan out because I wasn't able to kill the ships. But uh, I don't know. I thought it, it turned out pretty well. My, my overall game plan was trying to score points. And like, like all good combat, it quickly uh, disintegrated into just blow up the other thing. Blow up the other thing is always a good, po- uh, is always a good option in space combat games. You know, for that my part, strategy's called get them. <laughs> get them. <laughs> uh, we, we kept the rules pretty basic because we you know this being kind of a learning game for the three of you guys i didn't want to get too crazy with like cloaking rules or missiles or any of that sort of stuff and that's stuff that we could bring into it as we get a little bit more comfortable with it including some of the more custom ship design stuff though i do really like our our idea here to kind of make some custom bespoke upgrades for maybe one of the ships in the fleet but uh, my strategy was basically there were two ships that were coming out that were in between Zach and myself on that corner. My concern was that I would pass them too quickly to do enough damage and that in the effort to turn around and get them back within my fire arc, I would either be forced to turn into the planet, which would not be great because planets generally pull ships down into their gravity walls. Uh, (laughs) And then on the other side, if I went the other way, I would basically be exposing the back of my ships to Zach's fire. And I thought, well, there's a there's a couple scoring ships out in Mahoney's direction. If I go that direction, I can pass one of them, maybe do some damage to it, you know, catch some easy points with most of my fleet and then go to the ships that he's going to bypass after we pass each other. And instead, I ended up not doing a whole lot of damage because my dice were really cold and then just getting caught up in the fact that here's this great scrap and I just wanted to enjoy the moment. Strategy kind of went out the window and we ended up just, I don't know, it was just fun. Tell you what, your your son should probably look into playing orcs because he has uh, he has boss's luck with them dice. Yeah, that's right, because he. He was down there with us and he didn't want to have like ships of his own per se. He wasn't interested in, in moving, but he wanted to roll the dice. So when the destroyers were going to launch their torpedoes, I had him come over and the first shot that he did was a long range shot, needed a six to hit, bam, six, and then rolled what, a five for damage on the D five for damage on my on my poor uh, destroyer. I was like, oh man, he and he was he was <laughs> Feeling pretty good about himself. He loves to brag about that time at the Comic-Con here that he was the first person to roll a a 20 at this dice bag shop that had like, hey, if you roll a natural 20, you get a free dice bag. And so he just picks up the die, rolls it, boom, natural 20. And he was very proud of himself. As he should be. So I'm I'm afraid that he's probably not going to join the orcs, Rich, uh, especially because... He's already killed at least one war boss who attempted to steal Santa's candy. Uh, that was a Christmas game that we did a couple years ago. And uh, he's he's pretty proud of that trophy as well. It's, he's not he's not old enough yet to rebel. I, I keep I keep all my friends, kids. I keep the hope alive that Balian and 
and Sam and all these. I always talk to the kids, you know, orcs are better. You know, orcs are better. Do you know what? Did I? Did he tell you what I named my capital ship? No, he did not. It's the Sam Blasta. It <laughs> was the Slam Blasta, but the L was destroyed in an explosion. So it's the Sam Blasta. Oh, I bet he's all nice. over Nice. <laughs> <laughs> always the orcs are always tempting. Yes. Well, we are going to have to address that in the future. <laughs> if he's not uh, if he's not swayed to go to the orcs, he can always join the other side of the Xenos and come play Tyranid with me. <laughs> uh, we'll have to see. We'll ha- we'll have to see about that. He's right now. He's very interested in making his uh, dragon, like space dragon, space marine chapter. So, oh, sounds pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah, it's it's very ten year old to have something that's just let's let's have space marines but dragons however i think it's pretty cool he already repainted his dreadnought to be a purple and gold for the colors that he wanted to do and i'm looking at getting some custom bits for him for that but that that's a whole separate conversation he needs to paint some more of his stuff before i spend a bunch of money on bits but uh that said no i i think that was pretty cool i'm glad that you guys enjoyed the rule set we're definitely going to be doing it again and now we're kind of getting into the first round of the actual game game where, you know, in the next week or so, I'm going to send out a message for you guys with a what are your orders? And you guys are going to be able to choose what uh, what you plan on doing. And one of the things about full thrust that I like is something that I've incorporated into this campaign, not necessarily specifically because full thrust does it this way but with full thrust everybody writes their orders for the ships at the same time everybody moves at the same time we shoot at the same time everything's simultaneous well the way that we put our orders out for our armies in this campaign will work in the same way is that we will all drop our orders at the same time and kind of pick up the pieces from there i think that's what i loved most about that rule set yeah, yeah you, you couldn't get- really change what you wanted to do just because oh hey i i i see you're going to come after me well now i'm going to change my speed and and deal with you no that's not how that worked yeah you kind of have to guess what everybody else is going to do and, and try and position your ships with that guess in mind and at it also keeps everybody playing every moment of the game like there's no downtime right where it's yeah. so-and-so's turn, so the other three players have to wait while they move, shoot, blah, 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 blah. It's, you're moving your ships, I'm moving my ships, everything's happening at the same time. You know, if something gets destroyed, if it was in range of something, it still gets to shoot before it goes down, or as as it goes down, like that, I like that quite a bit. Yeah, I definitely like the, uh, there's very little waiting around. I mean, I think the only thing we were waiting for at all was someone to finish deciding what they were doing. But even that was only a couple minutes at most. Yeah, we kept things moving pretty quick, which was nice. We didn't have as much time to play as I as I would like. I think that's just the chronic issue of the gamer. It's like, oh, I wish we had more time. But I think things were moving pretty quickly, especially after that first turn. And we all just kind of, because it had been a while since I'd played it. But uh, I I at least had some experience with it. But you guys were still kind of learning the ropes. But uh, after the first turn, you guys, it was down to business immediately well for three new players and one that hasn't played in a while and a four player um skirmish that played amazingly fast chris that's great that's good to hear that's one of the reasons i thought that this would be a good sort of kickoff to the campaign 
that everybody could enjoy together. So the planet that we were fighting above is the Veda system, and it had the moon Adveda, which sadly nobody crashed into. It's the moon basically on the um, on the game board consisted of a a light side and a dark sided sort of uh, what do you call that sort of orbit where only one side is it like a locked orbit? I'm forgetting the uh, title lock. Yeah, yeah, that's the one title lock or something like that. And we we joke because when we were playing full thrust in the beginning, my dad, what he did was he went to the toy store and he bought a bunch of the Star Trek micro machines and repainted them. And so we had micro machine battles using the full thrust rules. That's another cool thing is you can just use whatever ships you want. But one of the times a Cardassian ship with damaged engines was not able to turn out of the way of the moon and crashed into it. So there's this, we painted on this little yellow smudge from where the Cardassian ship ended up scraping itself across the surface of this planet or this planetoid. But since this is where it kicked off and Zach, this is where you were victorious in gathering those resources for the beginning map before we issue our orders, you guys are going to see a basically a, a picture of the, the map itself with the planet represented by hexagonal tiles and I thought because we were we were trying to figure out what an extra boost would be. And I want to propose this for you guys is that because Zach won and he won so strong that one of those tiles would switch under his control on the planet itself. What do you guys think about that? Sounds great. I, mean, I would because we're using uh, we have also the that moon is also uh, part of the tiles, is it not? Yeah, the moon has its own tiles. However, it's only like one or two tiles and I didn't and controlling the moon has some pretty serious benefits for the owner. I didn't want to give like 50% of the moon away in the first round. Got it. Okay. What do you, yeah, what do you guys think? Is that, is that fair or, do, or Zach, would you prefer to be able to choose something like that? Um, I think just giving me a tile on the planet is more than enough, especially okay. with, you know, I, I avoided the moon. I don't, I didn't land on it. So <laughs> <laughs> land on it. Yes. Just like the Cardassians. <laughs> I, I, you're going to have to tell your dad that the Kardashian ships might need a name change. <laughs> well, you can you can take that up with the creators of Star Trek. <laughs> because the only other alternative I can think is the Spoonheads. And that, <laughs> it's, there's there's some Trekkie out there listening to this right now who's just like furious about this joke. He's like... It was cool before they came along and ruined it. <laughs> one spelled with a C and one spelled with a K. Get it right. <laughs> uh, nothing like, you know, angering uh, a whole group of fans of either Star Trek or 40K. Why don't we do both? But we'll do that a little bit towards the end of this segment. I have an idea, but I'm going to save that till after we're done with the housekeeping on the campaign here. <laughs> so... One of the things that we're going to have to manage is how much of these planets we own. If you guys have read in the player pack, owning a percentage, well, percentage may not be the right term. Everything could be a percentage, but owning a certain number of tiles on each planet indicates control of the planet. Now, each planet has a, a capital tile, but we were all going to start with one of those tiles under our control. Uh, aside from the Dark Eldar player, because he, he exists in the void. He doesn't really have a capital city. But uh, we're, 
we're going to be compensating for that because his his capital is basically the void, which has its own set of rules in there. But the three of us are are going to have basically home bases that we operate out of, and those bases will have a little bit of a benefit for us when we're defending them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we exert a special kind of control over the planet. It just gives us kind of an anchor to either expand out from or to consolidate our power around. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yep. Cool. So one of the things that we're going to be keeping track of is the tiles that you own because we have three rounds of issuing orders before the next escalation phase hits. And whoever has the most points, which are determined by the number of tiles under your control, will be the one who basically DMs the next group scenario when we hit that next escalation phase. So there's going to be some strategy involved with where you choose your targets and who you choose to go after and who may or may not contend you for some of those goals. But of course, some of that is going to be determined by the type of games that we're playing. Now, I was able to get my hands on a copy of the Kill Team rules. I still haven't used the new rules yet, though I understand that the new Tau and Sisters are doing really well, but that doesn't really affect either of us, or any of us, I should say. And Orcs already have pretty good rules in Kill Team, so far as I Mm -hmm. understand. However, if you want to claim territory, you're going to have to claim it in games of 40k. But you can still issue orders to do some of these side game systems, like the flea battles using full thrust, or you can do it via the kill team games to give yourself an edge in the next battle that you do. So that's going to be something to keep in mind. It's like, well, you have three rounds to score points and get tiles. So are you going to spend those three rounds actually fighting 40k battles on the ground to gain territory? Or are you going to try and give yourself an edge first? That's the decision that you guys are going to have to make when you issue your orders next week. Does that all sound good? Sounds great. Yeah, I like it. I've got to brush up on the kill team rules. Yeah, I I need to just brush in in the I need a I need a brush for the knowing of the kill team rules. One thing also to keep in mind is where some of this is going to be a little bit abstract so far as how we're tracking stuff. I am creating the maps. I'm gonna basically taking pictures of each planet and I'm gonna be coloring the hexagon in like Photoshop or something and updating a live map for us. And likely, as that changes, I'll post that up on Facebook or include it in other updates of this on the show so that people can kind of see where where everybody's landing out. But right now, just kind of keep in mind that the, the map's a little abstract, I guess. Sounds good. Now, one other thing I wanted to bring up is there are other game options that I, I put in this, like Apocalypse, Aeronautica, Aeronautica Imperialis, Adeptus Titanicus. Now, not everybody has minis or models in these games yet. Like, for example, Titanicus is just Imperium versus Imperium. So that's not something that I think this group would would use very much. In Apocalypse, we need much bigger games. You know, we'd, we'd need bigger armies for. But I'm collecting Aeronautica Imperialis for Space Marines, now that Space Marines are out. Orcs are out, and there's Eldar out. So... I'm going to throw kind of throw down the idea that if for a special engagement, if you know that the other player has or is interested in playing that as a supplemental game as well, that you're welcome to do that. 
And Zach, I would be totally cool if you played using the Eldar rules until your Dark Eldar get their own set. Mm-hmm. But uh, unfortunately, okay, cool. Unfortunately, the Necrons would be left out of this, at yeah. least in the short term. The, the the sadness always towards the robots. Imagine, though, if they came out with the next Aeronautica set and it was like Necrons versus Tyranids or something like that. God, that would make me so happy. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. So we'll we'll keep that as an option as well. If if you want to right now, I don't have any of it or have it ready just because nobody's had it in stock. And so I've had to special order it and the special order. Uh, the fulfillment is taking a long time because of the way that they're la di da di da logistics pretty much everybody's having logistics problems right now so that's that's something that i'm aspiring to i'm gonna paint i'm gonna paint a little thunderhawk to match my big one that's gonna be fun anyway that's that's an option that we'll throw out there as well now for the crusade itself we're starting at 50 power level have you guys i'm just gonna go by one at a time we'll start with boss how are you kind of starting your crusade force what is there a particular kind of army that you're trying to represent uh, where your your narrative is that he killed all the mech boys so are you going to go with a mostly boys list until you can get mech boys and then bring some more vehicles into it what what are you thinking of uh, so far as a thematic choice to build your 50 power level army well absolutely i'll probably start with basic infantry and and some grots and i mean really basic stuff and and then build from there. Okay, cool. How about uh, Mahoney? How about you? What are you thinking? I know you wanted to do kind of the infinite inexorable legions. Is that how you're starting your army as well? That is actually. I, I'm looking at trying to build uh, probably the largest force I can through that 50 power level, and then uh, using the the beginning re the beginning reinforcement points, the beginning five points to. Try to push that limit a little bit further. Okay, Zach, how about yourself? What uh, what kind of army theme are you going for? Well, so I'm basing uh, my cabal off of an actual footnote in one of the codexes. It's literally one of the little boxes. That's all the information we have on this cabal. But they they basically specialize in lightning warfare. So as many venoms and as many raiders. But I'm going pure cabal to start with no covens no witches just all going all shooty and fast so okay that's what i'm going for cool now for, for my part i'm starting without using the the captain for for this force i'm starting using the librarian who is the main character and either i'm, I'm debating between a, a sanguinary priest or a chaplain as his sort of hq companion for for this for the beginning of this exercise but I do kind of had have in my mind this command echelon. Basically, you like think of it like a supreme command uh, detachment or the old like command squad for those back in the day when you would think, okay, well, my command squad is my captain and he's attached. There's a veteran in there who's like the veteran sergeant. There's an apothecary. There's a tech marine. There's a blah 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 that represent all of the different you know, chapter organization things. So I have kind of a little story in my mind of who is who and why they're there. But it's starting with this librarian and some vanguard forces. I wanted to focus on some stuff like uh, scouts or scout bikes or 
uh, some of the the Primaris Vanguard Marines that would act as sort of the early. I guess you could say the, well, it's a Vanguard force. It's it's elite, but it's more scouty than necessarily trying to go all in. It's like, all right, here's the Redemptor Dread, and here's my Blade Guard veterans, and la di da di da. I'm trying to kind of engage with the idea that we're just in the beginning exploring and trying to determine strength as opposed to coming in with an optimized build. And I don't expect any of you guys to play at a lower level than you would normally play. We're all experienced tournament players, but this kind of lets some of that pressure to be optimized off and allows us some freedom to enjoy the, I guess you could say the role play of our army. And if there are things that you aren't liking about how your army's working or doing, you feel like it's too restrictive or it just doesn't have what it takes to con- to contend with some of the other players, then talk to me about it and we can reorganize some of that without having to necessarily, you know, have you start over or or whatever or just be unfairly restricted by the the terms of unit, you know, losing a unit or replacing a unit. Does that make sense? It does. Chris, as somebody who prides themselves on being able to play at various levels of play, I really love playing in situations where maybe I'm using a unit that is suboptimal because sometimes you find a gem, a diamond in the rough. Sometimes you, you learn a trick or a skill that maybe you didn't even know you could use a unit that way. And you find tricks that you can use even when you're playing in a competitive game. So don't ever just say, well, I'll never use that unit because most units in the game have a use somewhere. For sure. They get more useful as you play them in crusade as well, because you can actually give the squad improvements that maybe change something from a, oh, well, you know, this isn't that good to actually this thing can actually do a little bit of damage, uh, you know? That's right. That's right. So I would definitely encourage everybody to take a chance on maybe a not optimal choice. And you can still play hard with it on the table and play, you know, aggressively and try and go for your agendas and go for the mission that you're playing. But you don't necessarily have to feel trapped into, well, you know, it's more point efficient if I take the Vanguard veteran with a storm shield and a lightning claw instead of double lightning claws. That sort of it. Does that sound good to everybody? Sounds great. Definitely works for me. Awesome. So expect that sometime next week. Now, if we'll also try and figure out a game day for November, I will admit that the closer to the end of November that we get, the less likely it's going to happen in November just because we have Thanksgiving coming up uh, in the U.S. here. I'm also moving house the first week of December, and so there's going to be some packing involved with that for me. But if we can't get it this month, we will at least set a day that will work. We will declare our orders for the first round, and we'll set a date that those orders have to be executed, whether it's a game with one or more people so that we can have sort of the next day. It's it's like that old like death of D&D campaigns. It's, if you don't set the next session at the end of the last one, then there's a chance that the D&D campaign is going to die. And I want to avoid that for this as much as I can. Yep. So expect a message from me next week with that. And I will be sharing some images of the maps and stuff that I get prepared for you guys, as well as putting them up on the Facebook channel so that all of the... Uh, the Facebook page, I should say, 
uh, facebook.com slash brother captain morgan so that anybody who's interested can follow along there does that sound good sounds great okay so now that we've got that covered we're, we're back to my making nerds angry thing let's let's walk through briefly i want sort of the let, let's call it the two paragraph or three paragraph essay from each of you on which universe would win in a war the star trek universe or the warhammer universe and let's start with rich gilton go Oh my gosh. Uh, Warhammer universe easily. It wouldn't even be a contest. The, 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 the Federation would start talking about some kind of uh, having the prime directive. And the second they started talking, like the orcs would kick them in the head and, 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 and scrap their ship for parts. Okay. That's your thesis. Very good. Uh, let's go with uh, Rich Mahoney. Give me your three paragraph thesis to side with the boss uh, absolutely would be 40k that would win my my prime example for this is simply the fact that in star trek they can't even deal with the borg they the borg is too big of a threat for the federation and that's just a crappier version of the necron so if they can't beat against the borg what hope do they have in the 40k universe when one one of the factions is Necron? <laughs> okay, I, I hear your point. Thank you for sharing your thesis, Zach. That I want to hear your thoughts. Well, I actually it's ironic that you bring this up because I was actually following this exact discussion on another social media this week. Um, and I'm actually going to be a little bit of a contrarian. I actually think Starfleet might be able to pull it out, not because of their canon but because of our canon, specifically the orcs, because Rich, correct me if I'm wrong, but is blue lucky? Very, very lucky. And Star Trek is all based on, you know, they figure things out. They they're scientifically approach things and they discover new technology all the time. And what color do the science and the medical personnel in Star Trek wear? Uh, they wear blue. They wear blue. <laughs> So they would be blessed with orc power of luck. And we all know how your dice appreciate that. <laughs> so I would I would actually say, you know, don't count Starfleet out. Uh, see, I, I have to say that the first time that a Vulcan comes up and he looks at an orky shooter that has no ammunition and no trigger and it actually fires and kills somebody he's going to go, that's illogical. And he's going to freaking have a conniption and their whole race is going to like collapse and uh, <laughs> they just won't understand. Oh man. The image of orcs meeting Vulcans is just too good. Why have I not <laughs> thought of this before? <laughs> well, well, and, uh, just imagine the, uh, the image of the space wolves meeting the Klingons. <laughs> just, they just become friends. That's exactly right. Oh man. I wonder if the, Vulcan neck pinch works against power armor. <laughs> you know, All Star Fleet would have a meltdown though if they ever came across the Tyranid. That would be that would be bad news for literally everybody. I think that that's that's one of the things is like even if you boil it down to like one faction, like pick one faction from Warhammer 40k against like imagine say like the Emperor's Great Crusade, except he's coming from outside the galactic plane like the Tyranids do and in invading one galaxy or the other. Like the only, the only faction in Star Trek that I almost feel like would be an interesting fight for like 40 K races 
would be like the Jem'Hadar and the Dominion because they're the only ones that seem to actually like breed things for war and they have larger fleets than like 20 ships and just even the scale of the ships. Now I have a, I have a Star Trek fan, uh, a Star Trek fan friend. He's a real Trekkie and he would always make sort of these, these arguments about the, the incredible technology that they have. But I've been watching a lot of Star Trek lately with my, with my baby. I, I, I turn it on as kind of like background noise, but Honestly, let's be real about Star Trek technology and the words they use. It's it's magic. Science is magic. And I don't really feel like their technology level is much better. And I could probably talk about this for way, way too long and make the show drag on and make people hate me with my analysis. But suffice to say, I'm on team Warhammer so far as who would win in an all out war. And I think that Part of it comes down to just sheer weight of numbers, but we'll we'll end it there. I I can't wait to get the angry messages from Trek fans or even just the the fun little comments or jabs. They keep it keep it civil in the comments, folks. But uh, that was a fun little little distraction. Thank you guys. You're welcome. Okay, so with that in mind, you guys can expect to hear from me next week. So far as the campaign goes, we'll issue our orders. And we'll start arranging games and we'll just kind of go from there. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining me to talk about our, our game and where the campaign's going. The Diadem War has started. Welcome to the battle. Can't wait. Shots fired. Enjoying all of it. <laughs> all right. We'll see you later, guys. Bye. All right. Bye. luck tonight buddy yeah tough new hotness more like it <laughs> sure pal same time next week sure see ya <sighs> what am i gonna do about the new hotness Amanda, we need to talk yeah kato sicarius no it is i robute gilliman and we need to talk about your performance tonight oh come on robute He's playing the new hotness. What can I do? Well, the Codex says to use the terrain to your advantage, not leaving your whole army set up in the open. But, Rabute, the best I can do is this packing styrofoam that came with my dad's TV. Heresy! You can do better than that. Buy some MDF terrain from Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming? Isn't that that company run by the guy who sounds like he has strep throat all the time? Hey, bro, not cool. Silence! Don't get distracted. This is how you forgot to bring in your reserves. But, uh, Rabute, I don't even know what MDF means. It's woodcut with lasguns or something. It's not important. It's quality, durable terrain made for all modes of play with different themes like desert, ruined city, industrial, aliens, and more. But I hate painting terrain. It's boring. Never fear. Frontline Gaming has painting services as well. You're right, Lord Gilliman. I should order some.
But how do I do that? Where do I start? Go to www.frontlinegaming.org to find out more about terrain, miniatures, painting services, hobby articles, and events. Gee, thanks, Rabute. Any more advice for your loyal force commander? Not now, commander. I have to go back and check on Marnius. Last time I was gone this long, the 500 worlds became the 375. Go ahead and check out www.frontlinegaming.org. Tell them the chief librarian sent you. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Librarius and to this special segment, which I like to call Captain's Log. Now, Captain's Log segments are segments that I'm not going to be doing too often because they're not as timeless as some of the other content that I could be talking about. I mean, there are certain concepts and ideas in Warhammer. Some examples of that would be book reviews, because the books, so far as the written novels, are not often, I should say, updated regularly. They're not changing. That content is evergreen for our consumption. Whereas stuff like which edition of 40k is it, and which edition of which faction's codex is it, and which step from the codex release to which particular FAQ is it, like all of those things change so often that talking about them at the time, sure, is super relevant, but three, six months later, somebody listening to that content would probably just feel like, ah, well, this, this doesn't really matter anymore. Everything's already changed. So rather than just talk about what's hot right now or what's not hot right now or what's the big issue right now or what isn't the big issue right now, these segments I plan on having a little bit more of a sort of status report kind of a deal where I am talking about ideas and concepts within gaming that can change and progress over time that are somewhat impacted and influenced by current state of the games, current events in the game, the state of you know power level of certain codexes and whatnot, but also the way that the gaming community acts and behaves in the middle of these things, I think that that behavior is more evergreen than what that behavior is necessarily reacting to at the time. And there are also certain issues that I see pop up every now and again that are issues that have plagued the community, so to speak, for a long time. And so this segment in particular, I just want to kind of get some of my thoughts out. And oftentimes, talking about something is the best way to organize your thoughts on something and maybe do a little bit more of an outreach to all of you as the listeners to get what your opinions are on some of these things and some of these issues because my perspective is my perspective i plan to justify that perspective to the best of my ability but that isn't to say that that no other perspective exists and i'm you know just as a, a bit of a personal note i am not the type of person who thinks that every idea or every opinion has equal value. I feel that the value of opinions and ideas has to be supported with a basis in either a compelling argument or body of evidence. And it doesn't necessarily have to be all or nothing. So you can have three ideas and it's not that one idea is the best, therefore the other two don't exist. You create a hierarchy of which of those ideas work best given the particular situation. Things are always more complicated than we like to think they are. We like to simplify things. We like to condense things into memes or tweets 
when really things are often so much more nuanced and so much more complicated. And that's one of the benefits of this particular kind of media is because I don't have to have a tweet that sums up everything that I think about it. And I don't have to try and submit 50 tweets to finish a thought or an idea. I have a podcast. I have an ability here to talk at length about something until I feel like it's done. And I'm not particularly interested in buzzwords or catchphrases or things that condense stuff into quips and whatnot that effectively spoil what could be a very interesting kind of conversation. So I don't really have a an essay style structure for this kind of a segment. This is a lot more free thought, though I do have a couple of things that I want to touch on that I have in mind, but I haven't necessarily put it all out on paper. Even so, these are things that I've put a lot of thought into and have had several conversations about with people locally, or even my wife. I am fortunate enough to have a wife who is interested in a lot of the same hobbies as I am. So far as miniature gaming goes, she does have a slight interest in Warhammer and Age of Sigmar more, more particularly, but she does a lot more of like Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games and things like that. And a lot of the problems that plague those communities tend to have a lot of common ground. So she has a good head on her shoulders and I like being able to just talk to her about like, hey, so I was thinking about this problem and I noticed this sort of behavior in the community. What do you think about it? And I can get her opinion on it. I find that very useful. So for today's state of the game, I have a general theme and the theme is false conflicts in wargaming. Now, when I say false conflicts in wargaming, I'm talking about things that create conflict within the community in ways that don't make sense or that are counterintuitive or counterproductive from my perspective. They are artificial lines in the sand that divide up the hobby and groups of people into groups that are antagonistic towards each other. And I'm all for people enjoying what they enjoy and not enjoying what they don't enjoy. That's fine, but it's the way that it turns into a better than or you are less than in the conversation that is something that I think is an issue that the community at large, not just in Warhammer, but huh, across all different aspects of life kind of need to get figured out. So the first of these I wanted to talk about a little bit was Forge World. And I see this conversation pop up probably once or twice a week and it pops up in competitive groups. It pops up in narrative groups. It pops up in conversations with private faction groups. But the issue of Forge World itself and whether or not people should or should not be able to use Forge World tends to come up as a point of argument quite frequently. One of the more recent examples of this that I've seen has to do with tournaments that have or have not allowed Forge World units or rules or models to be used at their events. And at this point, I just want to come out and say that I think that it's really quite silly to think so. Because the reasoning doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And it may have made more sense to me years and years ago when Forge World was kind of a pipe dream that I never thought I'd be able to have or afford. And let's be real, it's still very expensive. But compared to, you know, a 14 year old getting five bucks a week on his allowance and an adult, the ability to afford has changed <laughs> quite a bit since then. But the first argument I always hear coming from people who say, I don't like the use of Forge World. I don't want to play against Forge World. I don't want people to use Forge World. 
is that Forge World units are overpowered. This is probably the loudest and longest argument that has gone on so far as Forge World units are concerned. And it doesn't make any more sense to me now than it did before. Because one of the things that would be true if all Forge World units were overpowered or superpowered compared to quote unquote regular 40k units or however you want to, to describe it, then entire armies would be composed of just Forge World units. Why would you bring anything else if something by virtue of it being from Forge World and cast in resin was just better than anything that you had available? When you really break it down, though, if you look at Forge World, Forge World just offers additional units to the army. But much like the number of stratagems in a codex, the number of stratagems that are good or useful or popular is much, much smaller than the actual number of stratagems in the book. There are just one, you don't have enough command points. You couldn't hope to use all of the stratagems, even if that were possible. But there are some stratagems that are so niche, so particular, so specific to a situation or even perhaps a specific unit that it just doesn't get used all that often. I mean, look at units such as uh, the Whirlwind Hyperios. That is a Whirlwind from Forge World. It was around for a very, very long time. And it was basically a Whirlwind tank that had one anti-air shot. To this day... I have never seen someone field or use a Whirlwind Hyperios. And I'm sure someone out there is going like, well, I had one friend who used it sometime in somebody's basement game somewhere. But from my perspective, I've read over thousands of Warhammer 40k lists, particularly ones in competitive settings. And I have not seen a single Whirlwind Hyperios tank on there, which is a Forge World tank. Now, what you do end up seeing, like let's take Adeptus Custodes for an example, is Adeptus Custodes, the majority of their range actually comes from Forge World because of the 30k range. And they're a little bit of the exception to this rule because a lot of their stuff is good, but Custodes by themselves have very powerful stat blocks and they pay an incredible points premium for everything that they have, use, and build whether it's Forge World or out of the basic codex. And if their quantity of Forge World were to be taken away, it severely limits that army's ability to function. When you have a book such as Space Marines, Space Marines gets a lot of hate, I get that. But one of the things about that book is there are a ton of different unit entries in that book. But generally speaking, you only see the same kinds of units taken over and over in list after list after list after list. And this holds true for competitive games and for casual games and narrative games. There are certain units that do the things that you wish to do or that help you roleplay the aspects of a faction that you wish to roleplay and they're effective and so you're motivated to bring those units. And this is usually at the expense of something else in the book that doesn't get taken as often. But nobody talks about taking those units and saying you're not allowed to bring them at tournaments. Or let me put it this way. Let's talk just pure codex right now, super powerful, Dark Eldar. Dark Eldar are way good right now. But even in the height of its super good, awful brokenness, nobody was saying that you can't bring raiders or ravagers or, or a particular tactic or group that is part of that book. 
no one is saying, well, that stratagem's too good, you can't use it. But when we talk about Forge World, which is basically just adding on some stuff to the side of that, for whatever reason, people feel comfortable saying, well, no, that's the exception. We can say you can't bring that, as opposed to taking the super powerful things that already exist in codexes that are taken while other units are not taken because they're not as good, and saying, well, that good thing is too good, you can't have it. And keep in mind, I've been playing the game for over 20 years at this point. And that's not so that I can talk down on people who have not been playing it for that long, but that's just to point out that I have a memory of times where there were some really, really good rules that were assigned to Forge World units. I still remember one of my favorites, and it was one of the things that actually kept me in the game in 7th edition is the Whirlwind Scorpius, that you would get the, the D3 or the D3 plus 1, blast templates and you could actually put ignores cover on those blast templates and they were barrage so you didn't have to see to be able to fire and it was one of the only things that kept me safe from eldar jet bikes and yeah it was an armor 13 front basically predator chassis but there was not a lot in the eldar book that couldn't actually do some reasonable damage to it some of these builds that i had using forge units were things that actually kept me in the game and taking those things out was a big detractor for me wanting to go and support an event or a store that didn't allow those things because I wanted to be able to participate in the game and not being able to participate in the game at the same level as everyone else because of some arbitrary decision that Forge World was too powerful ruined the fun for me. And it ruins the fun for a lot of people. So there's another argument that comes along with Forge World that I also want to touch on a little bit and that it's pay to win or that it's favoring the rich and i can be honest enough to say that forge world and i believe i said it earlier in this segment that forge world is very expensive it's the sort of thing that me with a grown man's salary i rarely purchase from forge world unless i have a tax return or a bonus or some other unexpected source of extra money that once all of my responsibilities are properly accounted for i can afford to send the money over that way and let's be real about how money affects people's ability to enjoy things, because it does. And I don't think that if you're struggling with money or if you don't have enough money to get all the things you want all the time, that you're a, a bad person or, or a failure. There are certain circumstances that just impede people's ability to do everything they want with their lives. And yes, money can alleviate some of those problems. But, but to put this into a 40K context, just because you can buy a Forge World unit doesn't mean that you necessarily have the competence to use it well on the table. And by virtue of this hobby requiring people to spend money to participate in, unless you were able to get into the hobby and for free get everything that you needed for it, modeling, painting, whatever, you had to spend money at some point. You spent money on something that you considered to have value to you and you use that for whatever success you were seeking, whether that was to build a theme and to create a presentation of models or whatever, or whether you were trying to win in a tournament. But to turn around and say that something exists only as a pay to win doesn't sit well with me. And I don't think it sits well with all of the other people who, like me, have had to sacrifice, save, and plan and budget and wait to get the things that we wanted while we were taking care of the things we needed to first. And for all of the extra money that you spend on Forge World or resin products in general, 
you are putting in extra time as well. That's another extra bit of, well, time is money, right? That you invest into producing something that you can use to achieve your goals. So for a tournament organizer or for a store to come in and say, no, actually, here's this thing that you have that you invested in. You obviously invested time and patience and skill into bringing it here today. And of course, I can see that you've paid your entry fee to this thing. And I am setting up this arbitrary rule, though, that says you can't use it because I think it's too good. Never mind how there are books out there that are so good and so powerful right now, even without their Forge World editions. I'm not cherry picking the things you can take out of that book because it's official. It's the only real book for that faction. I am just arbitrarily deciding that this thing that you sacrificed and spent money and time on just isn't allowed here because I don't like the way that it lets you do well at the thing you love doing. And to act like that's something that's in the service of some kind of balance in Warhammer 40k is where I call this silly. Because we know that 40k isn't balanced. 40k has never been balanced. And there are times where it has been more or less balanced over time depending on which perspective you're standing in. I mean, take, for example, 7th edition Blood Angels, to use me again as an example, versus 7th edition Eldar. But then flip that right now and talk about 9th edition Blood Angels, which do pretty well against 9th edition Eldar. Or to put it more accurately, in 9th edition, before the release of the Eldar Codex, the Blood Angels seem to be doing well against Eldar as they existed in 8th and are still functioning in 9th. But no one is calling for me to not be able to use things like Sanguinary Guard or Blade Guard Veterans in my games because they're too good. And there are plenty of people who are out there calling for points increases or decreases or nerfs to some of these things. And more power to them for doing that. That sort of feedback, I think, should exist for the game. However, I don't think that we are doing the community any favors by deciding that somebody who was able to, whether through sacrifice or abundance, find something that they enjoyed in the game and bring it and play with it and saying, no, you can't do that. And more than that, you should feel bad for doing that. You should feel like you're cheating or a power gamer or whatever and adding all of these labels. It feels so much less like it's an attempt to balance the game and more like it's an assault on someone's character. And it's like we're trying to make people feel bad for being able to afford to participate in a voluntary hobby that is already expensive, no matter how you shake a stick at it. And who are we to say that the person who is doing well enough right now to spend a bunch of money buying and maybe even spend more money commissioning an army should feel bad about the fact that they're successful as if they've never had a period in their life where they were unsuccessful or didn't have money and Sure, that happens, but I would be willing to wager that that is more the exception than the rule. Because here's the thing, if you're worried about the type of person who's just going to spend money to win, then you're worried about a type of person, not a type of product that they purchase. Because all you're doing by creating this arbitrary line in the sand between Forge World Allowed and not Forge World Allowed, is telling them where they're going to spend the money to beat you or to win at whatever it is in the format that you've described. What you're trying to do is combat a behavior in a way that doesn't actually address the behavior. And no matter how hard any TO or store owner tries to curb 
that sort of behavior, if you're going to put people in a situation where they have to compete against each other, and that could be in a tournament or that could just be two people playing a game across from each other, they're still in effect competing over objectives and points and scoring and how seriously they take that doesn't really matter. They are still in a situation where they have prepared and use their time, their money, and their talents to enjoy something. And if what they really enjoy is clubbing seals, as we so often like to say, then they're going to find a way to do that whether you allow Forge World or not. And you're not really making the problem any better by denying, say, the middle tables, we'll call them, the 97% of people who show up to events that aren't aiming to get into the top 10 or whatever it may be, those people's fun is being restricted because of an arbitrary desire to address a problem that exists within people's behavior and not in the products they purchase. There are always going to be things in life, and especially in Warhammer, that operate better or worse than others. But you have to put it in the perspective of, are all of these things bad? or is it just the nature of the beast that some things end up being better than others? And saying, well, at least I don't allow Forge World at my events or in my store does very, very little to actually solve the problem and creates more problems in the meantime. So to anybody out there who is thinking, no, Forge World isn't allowed, the only real difference you're making is equivalent to saying that armies that are painted in the color purple aren't allowed to play. It is just as arbitrary and just as easy to get around. I don't really understand with all of the things that are going on in 40k right now and all the things that are going on in the real world right now that are very, very difficult for people to deal with and to manage that we really need to get ourselves all twisted up about Forge World being allowed or not. So those are my thoughts on the Forge World allowed versus unallowed issues that still seem to come up quite a bit. As a funny side note, I heard that there was some kind of a tournament in Europe where they were pulling Forge World models if they thought that they might be recast instead of having some way to actually verify it. They just kind of went over and said, well, I don't know if this is a recast or not, so I'm just going to pull it from the table. That seems not great. And I'm sure that the whole recast issue is going to come up in another segment on the show, but I don't want to delve too much into it at this point except to say that if you're worried that Forge World is a symbol of elite status and some sort of rich versus poor comparison between players, that the existence of recasting nullifies that argument pretty well. But like I said, I'll save the morality of recasting for another segment. So I am, however, interested in hearing any counter arguments to this position. Now, what I would be interested in seeing is if anybody has like a counterpoint that they can back bring up that talks about the ratio of powerful versus weak Forge World units to the ratio of powerful versus weak base codex units and can show that Forge World units on average are, you know, a vast percentage more powerful in relation to the number of un underpowered ones. That's something that you know, we could look at. But I'm also interested in how you feel like, especially in modern 40k, where Forge World, it seems, is so much less important, why it should continue to be banned or 
discouraged for people to use at events. So feel free to send me your articulated thoughts at facebook.com slash brother captain Morgan if you have strong feelings on this issue. So the next thing on this little soapbox rant that I wanted to talk about is this false distinction between narrative and competitive gamers and the way that the two groups of people tend to antagonize and look down on each other. And it comes from, I think, an all or nothing mentality is that, well, if you don't like everything the way that I like it, if you don't like cheeseburgers and you just like hamburgers, then not only are you doing it wrong, but you should feel bad about not liking cheese on your burgers. Now, listen, I am a Dutch person. I'm half Dutch, I should say. And I like cheese on lots of things. I put cheese on things that you're probably not expecting me to. But if you don't like cheese, I'm not going to make you put it on your sandwich to feel good about yourself as a human being. And I think that the same argument applies to narrative and competitive gaming. And I'm going to use some anonymous case studies from my own experience to show examples of this sort of antagonistic behavior coming from both sides and the ways that it can manifest in both types of gaming. And I just kind of want to break down the idea that narrative and competitive are two different types of people. I think that instead it's different ways to play that in certain situations, people who have disagreeable behaviors end up manifesting those behaviors. So I'm going to take the time to define some terms here before I get into it, because I'm going to be using some words that might mean different things to different people in particular contexts. And I want to make sure I have the definitions laid out beforehand so that I'm not speaking and you're understanding something different than what I'm actually saying. So when I'm talking about gamers personalities, I'm using something called the big five personality traits. And as far as I am aware, the big five are the way that most professional psychologists define people's behaviors and personality styles. So a lot of people are used to the sort of general Facebook quizzes like, which Lord of the Rings character are you? Well, let me uh, figure that out and steal your password information. No, I'm talking about something that's generally accepted among professional psychologists. And the big five is basically a degree, like a scale of zero to 100, of how much your behavior manifests this trait and how that trait is defined. So let's start with openness to experience. So openness includes aspects such as intellectual curiosity, creative imagination. The next trait is conscientiousness, which is organization, productivity, responsibility. The next trait is extroversion, which is sociability, assertiveness. The opposite would be introversion. Agreeableness, which would be compassion, respectfulness, trust in others. The opposite of that would be disagreeableness. And then neuroticism, which is tendencies towards anxiety and depression. And so when I'm talking about disagreeable people, I'm not just talking about like, oh man, I could really disagree with that person. But I'm talking about personality traits that make this person disagreeable. And disagreeableness isn't necessarily a negative thing because being disagreeable is also another way of saying I can say no to something unfair when I need to. So that's an example of being disagreeable that's actually positive because that's something that people as individuals need to be able to develop. And it applies to tabletop gaming because if your opponent is trying to do something that is illegal or unfair, your ability to stop and say, no, you can't do that 
that's cheating or no, I need you to explain that to me is actually a positive thing for you and for the opponent because it offers a chance for the opponent to perhaps correct themselves if they are of the mind to do that. And it also allows you to not feel like you let something bad happen to you on purpose that cost you the three hours of fun that you could have had. And in that same vein, you know, extroversion, which is sociability and assertiveness, like being assertive isn't necessarily a bad thing, though having an assertive personality can, to people who are more introverted, seem very, very hostile, let's say. But somebody who is, say, scoring high in extroversion, but is also scoring high in conscientiousness would know that, hey, I'm a lot to handle right now. I can see that the person in front of me is struggling and I need to tone it down a little bit. And then your extroversion in combination with your conscientiousness becomes a positive trait that allows you to enable somebody else to have a good time on the table across from you. But so far as how it relates to the idea that competitive gamers or competitive tournament players in Warhammer 40k act as if they are better than or let's flip the let's flip the coin to the other side that narrative gamers are playing the game the way it was meant to be played as opposed to what those competitive players are doing like those are the sorts of ideas and ways of acting within the community that I'm trying to address here in this section and I'm using these definitions as a way of helping me organize this conversation into something that's more easily understandable to a, a larger group of people. And I hope that it works, but I guess I'll find out. If you hate it, I'm sure you'll let me know. So let's start with the premise of either of these perspectives, that my X way of playing the game is better than Y's way of playing the game. And therefore, we must categorize and alienate and exclude or include people based solely on whether or not they participate in A or B category, or I guess to be consistent X or Y category. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to solely interact with people who believe that X category is better. And in our X category groups on Facebook or social media or whatever you want to say, we are going to continually talk about how we are really, really good at this and they are really, really bad at it, and boy, they're terrible and dumb and stupid for liking the things that they like. That's the basic premise of this false conflict within Warhammer Gaming, that you're either a competitive player or you're a narrative gamer, and to be in one or the other category means that you have to sacrifice the other category in order to really play the game the way it's meant to be played. And we can even kind of share that across another spectrum and this is something that's a real pet peeve of mine is that looking at somebody who's playing a different kind of game within the same universe let's say Horus Heresy or uh, Necromunda and saying that well I play Warhammer 40k nobody plays Horus Heresy nobody plays Necromunda nobody important anyway so the, the thing that you're doing is less worthwhile than the thing that I'm doing Gosh, another huge example of that sort of attitude comes with the Lord of the Rings strategy battle game. I've had that conversation with some people who I really admired and respected at the time, who when I mentioned either participating or enjoying that kind of game, talking down to me like my participation in that game was childish and less important and that I needed to kind of get with it. So those concepts are pretty well interconnected, I think. 
And it comes with, yes, people having a hierarchy of values. I value spending my time on this game more than this game. But it also comes down to the way that I play this niche of a niche of a niche that I participate in has fundamentally more value. And therefore, I have more value and my opinion has more value than somebody who participates in a different niche of a niche of a niche. So let's get to the first case study example of this. And I'm starting from the competitive side, looking down on non-competitive players. And I'm going to speak generally. I'm not going to be using people's real names because these are conversations that I either was present for or that I viewed or had to moderate in some instances. And I don't want to just throw names out there and call people out per se. I do want to call the behaviors out and give kind of my analysis on that way of thinking. So there was an instance in a local group that caught my attention where there was a long thread of argumentation going between one person and another person. And one of the people was probably someone who scored very, very high from zero to 100 on disagreeableness. If I were to take the big five personality assessment test and put it in front of this person, he would have probably scored in the, you know, the, the top percentages of disagreeable people to talk to. And probably more so just because we're talking about an internet conversation and people generally tend to feel a little bit more brave to talk about how bad other people are on the internet when they are on the internet and aren't very self-aware of that. Nevertheless, there was somebody who was a little bit more new and uncertain, someone who was probably very, very high scoring on something like introversion. So low, low score in introversion, therefore high score on introversion on a zero to 100 scale. And this was a person who was just starting to get into the idea of playing tournament games. Somebody who was more interested in smaller scale games or some games that were a little bit more loose and free format and less had less pressure involved with them. And whether that pressure actually existed or not is less important than this person's ability to enjoy themselves when participating in that kind of a game. And it was the sort of person who several others in that group had worked very, very hard to be ambassadors to the hobby for. And from their conversations to me about it, it was fundamentally from a position of, I respect this person and their abilities, and I like spending time with this person or the way that this person contributes to the community. And I want them to be involved in what we're doing because I think it would make things better. And for her part, she was trying very hard to open her mind and open up to the possibility of attending or participating in these kind of things. But she was also, at least from my outside perspective, I could see that she was a little bit uncomfortable and worried about some experiences that could happen as a result of the stereotypes of competitive play. Within the community, we typically say it's like playing that guy or that girl. And whether or not a person like that is common in competitive play has very little to do with it because those types of people generally get the most attention when playing Warhammer 40k, particularly in the competitive scene. So in this post where the original commenter had indicated a change or an idea, the disagreeable person decided 
that not only did they dislike what this person said, they also said that people who don't play competitive Warhammer 40k don't matter to the game at all. And then beyond that, doubled down on that later to say that not only do the people who don't play competitive 40k not matter, they actually make the game worse for everybody else because they exist and play the game the way that they enjoy. And I'm not going to go down and paraphrase all hundred and something replies to that comment before it was eventually reported and la di da di da but suffice to say that the more introverted person, the person who was being reached out to by positive members of the community, saw this and they had an argument. And it was unfortunate because the rest of the commentary on this particular conversation was fairly insightful and involved a lot of people speaking openly about some of the challenges, stereotypes, problems in certain aspects of getting people together for organized play. Because the original post was about, I ran a tournament the last weekend and I was very impressed with the way that people played the game with this new person who had just attended their very first tournament. It ended up being a very positive experience for several people, and I'm really proud of the community. And the conversation surrounding that topic devolved into people who don't play competitive 40k are making the game worse for everybody else. So there's that premise that I talked about earlier. This is the idea that the way that I do things or the way that I think things should be done invalidates the ways that everybody else can enjoy this thing that I do. And I'm going to express that opinion with as much contempt and lack of conscientiousness as possible to get my point across. And the result of this disagreeable behavior was that this person was disinvited from participating in the group and managed to upset quite a few people. And they then went on to other groups to talk about what happened in such a way as to make them not the bad guy, etc., 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 thereby spreading the controversy and the drama to unrelated groups of people in the attempt to seek out some form of sympathy or validation for their opinion. Now, so far as desire versus outcome, if this person's desire was to express superiority and to show some kind of solidarity with the idea of competitive gaming being better, then by and large, the majority of competitive gamers who participated in that conversation not only rejected the idea, but rejected the person who had the idea as well. And it is also worth noting that this individual had not participated to anybody's knowledge in a competitive Warhammer event in quite some time. Nevertheless, had a strong enough opinion to think that, well, I know enough about this to tell you that you should feel bad about feeling nervous or uncomfortable about playing in competitive environments. In the end, all this did was to serve to alienate this person from others who enjoy playing competitive Warhammer and also alienate other people who read the conversation and thought, this is the exact kind of thing that I'm nervous about. This is why I can't enjoy the game with everybody else. So there's competitive example A, we'll say. And then I will move on to narrative example A. Narrative example A has a slightly different premise than the competitive example A, in that this case study has less to do with a narrative person 
talking smack on a competitive player, but rather has more to do with a behavior that ended up undermining that perspective's ability to enjoy the game. So this example comes from an old gaming group of mine. I'm not going to name any names, and I'm still friends with every individual in this group, and I'm not trying to necessarily pick on somebody, but I really would rather highlight the fact that there was a problem, and then there was a, a negative result of that problem, and I want to preface this with the end result at the very, very long end of it was things got better, people still were friends, and by conversation and communication, by a little bit of introspection on many parties, that things were able to improve over time. So if you recognize yourself as you're listening to this, and you may agree or disagree with the outside perspective, and that's okay. What's more important here is to point out that a bad behavior existed, that behavior or those behaviors for the various individuals involved created a negative outcome that prevented people from being able to enjoy the game. And discussing it openly and talking about the circumstance as a way of figuring out a way to communicate this to others does more good in helping people look at the example, analyze their own behavior, and perhaps change it than it does to keep it secret and not talk about it. And so far as some of those negative behaviors go, I have to point myself out as a participant in this. So there were some things that I had to learn and correct and address as well. So a small group of gamers, there's about six of us, were playing in a campaign and I was acting as the, I guess you could call it the dungeon master for this campaign. And I had created a campaign booklet. I had prepared a series of maps and painted up a whole bunch of tiles and had put a lot of work into character tables and being able to like say improve your strength your toughness by rolling a d6 on a table and a resource management system and ways to move across the map it was something that I had put a lot a lot of work into because I wanted people those people in particular to enjoy themselves playing the game to have a reason to look forward to it and for me to have a reason to spend more time with them and by and large up to the point where things went wrong, it was a very fun experience. But eventually, there was a set of conflicts between two players. And as the dungeon master slash game master, I was required to step in and mediate and moderate the problem. And this began around 6th edition 40k, and it was right when super heavy vehicles were starting to become a little bit more commonplace. I think it was around the same time that the Allied chart first appeared in 6th in edition, and I built the campaign in between 6th and 7th, and I don't think that 7th had happened yet. But during the course of a conflict between two players and the game they were playing, things didn't go very well. The game ended up being a bad experience for both of them for a variety of reasons, and the exact circumstances probably would get lost on people who haven't played 6th edition, but it was right around this time that super heavy vehicles were starting to become a little bit more common and become a little bit more of an option for people to bring and play in games. And as a result of the negative experience that one of the gamers had, let's say player A was very salty and upset about it. Player B was very salty and less upset, but more 
just determined to continue to do things their way. And while I sympathized a lot more with player A's situation and feelings and could understand some of the anger and frustration involved with the experience of playing with player B, player A's response to that situation was, was to bring in a super heavy vehicle to purchase it in advance of their next game with player B, get it put together and painted in secret, and then without notifying this other player that they had it, set it up on the table at their next game as a way of saying, ha, you made this so miserable, I am now going to make this game miserable for you by dominating you with this thing that I know that you can't handle. And regardless of the motivation for that, and whatever player B did to inspire that sort of a desire to get back at them, nevertheless, it was something that as a game manager, as a dungeon master for this campaign, I looked at and had to think, well, is this fair or is it not fair for this to be a thing that could happen? And I was torn between the two players' perspectives and also my own. But ultimately, I decided that allowing this thing to happen would not be for the good of the campaign and the good of everybody. And while I wanted player A to be able to enjoy this thing that they had bought and to use it and uh, be excited about painting and playing with it, I decided that it would be better if before the use of these things that both players agreed to their use before their game. And this is the part where my own management of the situation just totally went sideways and I was not really prepared to handle the fallout of the decisions that I made and the and my attempts to mediate the problem from that point went south. And as a result of the negative drama that was involved in the decisions of all of us who are involved, the entire campaign ground to a halt and we basically never played another game of that campaign. After all of the time and the investment that I had put into making it work, that that's you know the purchasing of a planetary empire set, creating a custom map on a large cork board that I painted to have continents and all of this different stuff, and then the hours and hours of creating these campaign rules, going through the process of putting art in and having designs and making it look like it could have been you know, a very, very low-tech official supplement. And then to have all of that, in the end, wasted and lost and almost lose friendships between some of these individuals as a result of that was heartbreaking. But so far as the behavior itself, there was a large amount of disagreeableness involved in the decision to purchase something and play something solely to give the other player a bad experience because or in retaliation for a negative experience that this person received. Now, there are several different ways that this situation went wrong. However, the similarities between the idea of you have to play competitively in order to have value in the game and that winning the game, regardless of the method you use to win the game, is more important than the other person's experience playing the game that's where I think that the two case studies share some common ground. And you have to remember that in the second situation in narrative study scenario A, there was no real benefit just to winning. 
There was no tournament prize. There was no money or store credit that was on the line here. It was just a group of people together trying to enjoy their hobby with their friends. That is not competitive 40K, but it is a behavior that is likely more associated with competitive 40K. But all of you who have played narrative games or all of you who have played casual games, whether in a basement or in a store or doing pickup games or with a group of friends, there are situations like this that even though there are no real stakes, there's no best in faction award at the end of this, behaviors can manifest themselves in both of these types of play that cause problems and in the end, take away enjoyment of the game. So you could be listening to this and you could have never set foot in a game store, never gone to an ITC or any other kind of tournament, but you could have still delivered this experience to your opponents because of the way that you manifested some of these highly disagreeable behaviors. Now, I have been to competitive tournaments and I have judged the largest competitive singles tournament in the world. And I have seen competitive players up close when they aren't at their best. I was there when a particular player upset about the way the game was being played and upset about the way that certain rulings were made and the way that certain dice were performing, lose his mind, go so far as to yell screaming out loud and threaten violence to the judges because what he claimed ended up not being true. But I have also seen in casual environments, in narrative campaigns and narrative driven gaming events, I have seen people cheat on their army lists, uh, miscalculate points intentionally, we'll say, or use rules or abilities to their advantage, contrary to the way the rules are written, in order to get an advantage to win the game. These problems do not exist in just one half of the gaming sphere. These are problems that exist with people's behavior. And as long as people are involved, no matter how you try and divvy up the groups, there are going to be people who are higher in certain traits than others, whether it's agreeableness or disagreeableness, neuroticism, conscientiousness, openness to experience, any of that. So creating arbitrary lines between the right and wrong way to play Warhammer 40k by saying that there's a conflict between narrative gaming and competitive gaming is a false conflict. And anytime I hear a discussion that involves, well, narrative gaming is better because X, or I don't play in tournaments because I'm afraid of that guy, or narrative gamers don't contribute to the well-being of the game because they're not interested in balance, or any of these things, I look at it and I think, well, what we're really looking at is a set of behaviors that cross both ways of playing the game, not something that is exclusively on one side or the other. Competitive and narrative gamers have much more in common than they don't have in common, solely by virtue of playing games in the Warhammer universe. And I feel like the more that people on either side of this conflict tend to demonize or knock down the other side is just another way of creating a false division within the community that really shouldn't exist. And so I challenge anybody who's listening to this to analyze the way that they look at how other people play the game and to make a decision that no matter how you do or do not enjoy the game, that you do not have to act as if your way of doing it is superior to somebody else's. 
you don't have to denigrate a narrative player for not playing in tournaments and you don't have to talk down to a competitive player because they're not really playing in the spirit of Warhammer. But instead, I would challenge you to find ways to exploit these players for new ways to enjoy the game. A competitive player, for example, can appreciate the fact that a lot of terrain and things at stores is lovingly crafted by people who don't necessarily play in tournaments, and that the beauty of somebody who's more casual playing an army on the table and creating a more cinematic or engaging experience adds value to the time that you spend doing that. If you, if you put that into that perspective, then you don't have to look down on that person because they are offering something that you are getting a benefit from. And at the same time, a narrative player can turn around and look at somebody and say, wow, this person also plays the faction that I love or plays my nemesis faction. They're very knowledgeable about the game. By playing with this person and by interacting with them, I can actually improve my understanding of the way the game is played, and I can appreciate and increase my own skill in relation to theirs. Beyond that, I can also appreciate the fact that this person not only goes out and travels to these large events and brings back maybe trophies or experiences, but by virtue of them participating in these events where data on winning and losing is gathered and collected and submitted to Games Workshop, that this information actually ends up serving you as you end up reaping the benefits of the results of their games when balance changes and corrections to overpowered or underpowered units are used. You all have something to gain from each other. I just would encourage everybody to break down the walls between competitive and narrative gaming and understanding that the things that you don't like about the other side have less to do with how they're playing the game and have more to do with the personality types of the people in those groups. Because there are disagreeable people who play Warhammer in a competitive way who are conscientious enough to care about the experience of those on the other side of the table. It is a desire to win and a desire to win fairly that also considers the opponent. But on the other side, there are narrative players who are disagreeable and more interested in their own success within that sphere to the expense of the other person's experience. But in either situation, there is nobody who should think that they have to force you to play Warhammer a certain way to enjoy the right way. That's not the way we should think about hobbies. That's not the way that we should think about how we enjoy things. So I would like to challenge everybody that the next time you think you're getting sucked down into that singularity that is competitive gamers versus narrative gamers, that you think a little bit about what it is that you actually have to gain from each other. And I challenge you all to think about narrative and competitive gaming as part of the same whole as opposed to two sides that you have to choose and whether you just don't enjoy one or the other whether you just don't care about the narrative at all and just want to play with toy soldiers and roll dice or if the narrative means everything to you and your choice in faction is a reflection of yourself your struggles your personality all of those things are valuable and all of those things are valid in as much as they are valuable and valid to you. And you don't have to expect other people to value them the same way that you do. And let's all try and spend a bit less time on the internet finding creative new ways to jab at each other for the things we do or don't love and enjoy. So, yeah, 
Well, uh, this started out in the Librarius, but hopefully it didn't end up too far into the Ministorum. And I hope that uh, you enjoyed this segment. If you'd like to hear more of this kind of thing or less of this kind of thing, feel free to let me know by sending me your feedback at facebook.com slash brothercaptainmorgan. Hit the message button. Tell me what you think. Cheers. That was a doozy. Thank you for staying this long and making it to the outro of this episode of the Chief Librarian Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the content as much as I enjoyed making it. For the next episode, I'd like to fill a little bit of gap in the content that I provided on the show by talking a little bit with some people who are very skilled in the painting, modeling, and otherwise hobbying aspects of our wonderful tabletop wargaming hobby. And since I will be working on building my initial crusade force of Blood Angels, I'm going to talk a little bit about the process of building a crusade army from the beginning. What requisition is, what it does, and some ways to thematically orient your army towards a goal or an idea. We talk a little bit about this in the first segment, but we're going to put that into practice. And if I can, I'll get one of the guys to come in and talk about how they built their army as well and some of the requisitions and things that they used, just as a way of introducing people who maybe haven't looked at how to build your army in Crusade and kind of talk through some of the strengths and weaknesses of what is a rather robust amount of bookkeeping that you have to do. So keep an ear out for that in the next couple of weeks. Of course, we are getting into the busy season over here in the States, which means that a lot could happen and plans could change. But those are at least some ideas that I would like to cover in the near future. Time willing, I'd also like to get in another game of the 30k campaign that started last month. And so some hobby progress goals for that have to do with creating the Esoterrorist console. Now, I have ordered some custom weapons and things that I'm hoping will help him stand out. And additionally, I've also got some extra bits and things that I plan on using as I decorate this guy to make him look a little bit more ornate i'm building it from the stock tartaros terminator model from the plastic kit and that kit is pretty bare bones so trying to find a way to build it in such a manner as to have a little bit more character but also still feel like it belongs in the heresy because when you're looking at stuff from the horus heresy a lot of it does tend to look a little bit less fancy and ornate in some cases i mean if you're looking at the dark angels range everything's just beautiful but for the Blood Angels in particular, they have this sort of soft-edged, sort of round filigree appearance to all of their stuff. And for an esoterist, I'd like to bring in some elements of that, while at the same time kind of hinting at the fact that he's delving into knowledge and stuff that has been, up to this point, taboo. So I want to build a power-armored version of him, and then also a Tartaros armor version of him. But first, I've got a bunch of D&D bad guys i got to finish. And a couple good guys. In other hobby progress goals, before my hobby everything gets torn down for the move, I would really, really like to make this little plastic Thunderhawk I got. I managed to get my hands on a copy of the plastic Thunderhawk for Aeronautica Imperialis. I'm still waiting for my ordered copy of the big 
Space Marine versus Eldari box set that came out. I've been trying to get my hands on one ever since it first came out, and so far I've been very unlucky in that respect because it would be nice to have the rules for this Aeronautica game. But I got the Thunderhawk, and I'm going to be painting it to match my big Thunderhawk, which I should probably get some good pictures of. And then I also got the Fire Raptor kit, and the Fire Raptor was the first Forge World flyer that I bought, and I think it was actually the second Forge World model that I purchased. So I look forward to painting up one that will match my current 40k, 30k Thunderhawk design, as well as maybe another one that's similar but not exactly the same. But I'm talking about a lot of goals and not a lot of time, so we'll see how it goes. If you haven't already, consider leaving an iTunes review or a podcast review on whatever platform that you use just to help get word out about the show and promote the network a little bit more. All the positive feedback is welcome. The negative feedback is welcome too, though if you're going to leave it in a review, I'd rather you send it to me personally because algorithms are mean and they don't like it when bad things happen. Or, well, they don't even like it when they think good things happen that might be bad things. And... This is why I think abominable intelligences are banned in the Warhammer universe, but that's a whole other topic for itself. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Cheers. Hey, you. Yes, you. Right there. You are listening to the Frontline Gaming Network. So what does that mean? That means that you have access to a bunch of different and interesting shows. Right now, I'm listening to a lot of Signals from the Frontline because who has time nowadays to follow on your own and get all of the latest news in the gaming hobby? It is streamed every Wednesday, and I never catch it for the stream, but I do catch it later. I especially enjoy Kicker's commentary. He is 40k Hype Man USA, and I challenge anyone, I dare you, to try and prove me wrong or to upstage the hype that is Kicker Kalazdi. So, with my recommendation in hand, go and listen to Signals from the Frontline on the Frontline Gaming Network. I am Chris Morgan, and you are listening to a Creative Commons licensed podcast. Some rights reserved.